Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mark Bell's Power Project podcast, hosted by Mark Bell, co-hosted by Insima Eang and myself, Andrew Zaragoza. This episode was recorded on June 30th, and it is with our BFF, our big fat friend, Jesse Burdick. Uh, Jesse Burdick has been coaching athletes for tons of years. Uh, he and Mark trained together at Westside. So today we got deep, deep, deep into uh, the conjugate method. Um, so if you've ever had any questions or if you ever just wanted to know more, we literally break down the entire uh, method from squat bench and deadlift accessory work, uh, different tools that they can use in the gym, uh, just all kinds of stuff. So really any information that you guys are curious about, you'll probably hear it here on this episode. I'm really excited for you guys to check out today's episode. So I'm going to try to get out of the way as quick as possible. Um, but you guys know, we absolutely love mind bullet we take it pretty much before every single podcast. It helps us get like, you know, really get into the zone, uh, helps us formulate our sentences a little bit better. Uh, it helps us cognitively helps us just be in a much better mood. And we really want you guys to experience that. So head over to mindbullet.com right now at checkout, enter promo code power project for 20% off your order. And, um, that's just for the single orders so you guys can easily get the subscribe and ship type type of setup. So you won't get 20% off of that, but you'll get 20% off any of the other orders. We really want you guys to, to see what this feels like. So again, head over to uh, mindbullet.com at checkout, enter promo code power project for 20% off your order. And yeah, that's it for me. So ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this really, really informative, awesome episode about the conjugate method, uh, West side barbell, powerlifting, all the good stuff with our boy, Jesse Burdick. All right, cool. So today we're talking about conjugal visits. Mm-hmm. Those are always fun. <laughs> oh no! The homie in the pen needs some help. I, I can't wait to visit you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you keep leaving us. I know. It's not cool out here in uh, out here in Bodega. I'm stocked up though on uh, Piedmontese. I got a lot of hot dogs and a lot of burgers. Prepping for uh, being here for a bunch of days. Ate a bunch of hot dogs yesterday. Mm, you guys no. want to you go on a sick recipe an amazing <laughs> recipe let's hear it so you just you take the hot dogs cook them up whatever way you want to cook them up you know you can boil hot dogs or you can cook them up in a pan then you chop them up and cook them heat them up in a pan and then uh, throw cheese on top of them and then throw some mustard on top of them. And it's like the most amazing damn thing ever and if you wanted to like go chili cheese dog you can like you know you can get more into it and make some chili, dump some of that on there. But it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Mark straight ruined me. Um, I was, I was fasting for the day and he walks in after like a, I think it was a photo shoot, but like photo shoots for Mark is basically just like a hard ass workout. And he's just sitting there like chomping away. I'm just like, Oh man. And he's like, Hey, you want to try one of the Piedmontese hot dogs? I'm like, yo, I've never actually tried them. Sure. Same. Dude, I'm addicted to them. <laughs> ruin me. I'm like, oh my God, they're so good. I, I really do need to put like a, but the thing is, it's like, I, I, I hate straying away from the flat irons, you know, cause like if I'm going to put it in this big order, like I might just do like all hot dogs just so I don't run out. <laughs> you know? I got a, I got a question for both of you guys. Uh-oh. <clears throat> when you cook a sausage, especially like a hot dog, why does it get bigger? But when you cook a hamburger, it gets a lot smaller. Dude, that's that's a question you gotta ask Jake. Like, I have no idea. The, rid- the riddle. <laughs> you broken Sema. <laughs> Maybe no. It's it's probably like if you boil it. Well, even if you fry it, does it still get bigger? 
or only yeah, I think oil. I think even if you cook it like if you, even if you cook it on a grill, like a hot dog will expand and get bigger. Mm-hmm. A sausage will expand and get bigger all the way to the point where like it, it will pop. But you oh, could you yeah, could literally right. have like four. You could you could only fit maybe like three hamburgers sometimes in a frying pan. Mm-hmm. But once they start to cook a little bit, you can fit an entire another <laughs> hamburger in there mysteriously. I mean, I, I think, you know, it like oxidizes or whatever, and some of the fat gets cooked off or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand why the hot dog gets bigger. <laughs> oh, okay. The eggplant effect. It has a, yeah, it has a casing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So and that might fill up with heat. Exactly. Like uh, something inside is cooking and expanding into the casing. But if yeah. I ever had a casing, probably be the same thing it probably you're onto something that sounds pretty pretty good i don't know pretty good theory because like my rebuttal would be like even if you were to chop like the hot dog or the sausages and then like fry those they still plump up they still like turn into like little like almost like like uh saucers you know like they get we need to get a doctor on here. Maybe Burdick will know. He's pretty fat. Actually, yeah, we, fat. Should ask Burdick. Yeah. we should ask Burdick. <laughs> Any hoot for more information. Burdick, uh, he gave me his email, by the way, so I'll give you that. Okay, cool. Sorry about no, no worries. For more information on Piedmontese, please head over to Piedmontese.com. That's P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T-E-S-E.com. At checkout, enter promo code POWERPROJECT for 25% off your order. And if your order is $99 or more, you get free two-day shipping. What are we talking about today, y'all? talking about some lifting. lifting talking about some power some power lifting we don't talk about lifting anymore this is a fitness podcast and we don't even talk about that stuff i know i figured uh you know for today we would uh dive into some you know to some lifting stuff some straight up you know power lifting stuff maybe even talk a little bit about the west side method and uh how it's different from you know, regular training, maybe somebody that's listening, uh, has been doing some periodization for a while. Maybe they want to switch things up or maybe somebody just wants to be more informed on some of the West side stuff we're going to, so we're going to get into talking about box squats, training with bands, training with chains. And I think in SEMA, maybe he feels like he can't add that much to this conversation, but I think you can add a tre- tremendous amount to this conversation because I've seen you do box squats and I've seen you utilize some stuff from West side. And then also I think, um, I think it's also interesting. I, I don't really recall seeing you doing like a lot of speed work before, but you're an extremely explosive athlete that doesn't seem to lack speed. Um, so it'd be interesting to, because I think that people sometimes they think, like, oh, you, you train this way and then you, you're going to get this training effect and this is the only way to do it. Um, but there's certainly more ways to do it. Normally, if you make yourself stronger, um, especially relative to your body weight, then you'll be super explosive for your sport. If you just simply make yourself stronger in most cases, sometimes you can go too far and make yourself uh, strong and maybe like maybe the word clumsy would kind of factor in there where you're not moving as athletically uh, as you once did, like I did to myself through years and years of powerlifting, I made myself, you know, super tight to the point where it's, you know, more difficult to even just do something as simple as like running or running sprints, uh, because the hip flexors are tight, quads are tight. Things have really, uh, really locked up, but I didn't train for sport. I trained for training. I trained for lifting, you know? And so, uh, it was a little different. So I was willing to kind of, um, make some of those sacrifices. So in SEMA, um, have you utilized um, any, any type of speed training in your workouts as it pertains to like bench squat deadlift? And uh, if you, um, 
if you did, how did you utilize it? Well, I did. And I, I, I did it not using, you know, bands or chains. I, th- I mean, I did do some of that. Um, but it wasn't nearly as much as like, like Smokey and you guys would be doing. All I would do is like, I would move the percentage down to maybe let's say 55, 65%. Um, and with the same idea of like when you are programming bands and chains, right. And you're doing like doubles and triples. And I would just try to, uh, move it as fast as I could. But for example, on something like the squat, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily squat down fast. Um, I would kind of squat down slowly and then explode out of the hole once I get to my bottom position. Um, and I know that like when a lot of people do speed work, they do both the eccentric and concentric fast. Um, but on squats, I wouldn't, I would control the eccentric um, and then explode through the concentric. Uh, when I use like speed work for deadlifts, um, I would still control the descent, but I would do the same type of percentages, same type of load, and I would just move as fast off the floor as possible. Um, and even when I did speed work with potentially pause deadlifts, it was the same kind of idea where I would pause either once I got the bar off the floor, um, or if I was doing pauses from the knee, I would pause from the knee. And then I would explode through that next point. But again, it would be with pretty light load. Um, So I did do a lot of speed work, but the speed work didn't, I think it would have been obviously better if I maybe added some bands in or maybe added some chains in. But to be perfectly honest, one of the main reasons I didn't was because some of the times I would train at other gyms, I'd just be too lazy to add the bands and chains onto the list. I would just be too lazy to add bands and chains. So I'd just be like, all right, let's get this speed work in without it. Did you uh, utilize any of that as like practice work since the weight was just lighter? Like when mm-hmm. you did adhere to keeping it like, you know, 60% where you're just like, well, because the weights are light, not only am I going to try to explode up with them, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity. Because a lot of times when we do speed work, we do a lot of sets. You know, you might do six sets or you might do all the way up to 15 sets sometimes. And so it's an opportunity to get that first rep correct did you kind of use it for that as well just a technique perfection kind of thing yeah because it didn't like fatigue me too much it didn't make right. me too tired um like i would have a day where i would move some heavier loads and then i would have a day where i would move some lighter loads sometimes it'd be for speed work sometimes it'd just be lighter loads um for like box squats or pause deadlifts etc but um yeah, it, it, since it doesn't fatigue me too much, it's still allowing me to train the movement, but not beat myself up. I think Patrick Mahaffey, I think that's the big thing. Um, when people like that, that helps people with training that conjugate so cool for because you're not going like you're not maxing out every session. So you're able to recover well. Uh, but I know conjugate itself goes much deeper than just adding a little bit of speed work in. Like what I, what I think I'm really interested in is like, because a lot of people, maybe they don't have access to a lot of bands or chains, um, or maybe they do have a band, but like with you guys, what would be, I guess the, you know, some of the biggest concepts from the conjugate method that anybody can take and add to their training to get some benefit if they don't have all the nice equipment or things that they could use at home. Yeah. Number one thing I think is, um, 
what you mentioned is controlling the weights and then moving explosively. I think anybody that wants to have their lifts transfer over well into a particular sport or anyone who's trying to, you know, be a little bit faster or more explosive, even just gain some strength. I think that once you're warmed up for the most part, unless you're trying a different protocol because you're maybe messing around with some bodybuilding type training. I think that as soon as you're warmed up and you feel good, you should try to always explode in everything. And again, that would matter depending on what other methods you're trying to utilize. Um, if you're trying to do bodybuilding or something, then, then maybe you wouldn't explode into them. Maybe you can, would control them more and flex into them more and try to use some more muscle. But I think what you said is, is right on the mark. And I know that you haven't done like tons and tons of training year in and year out where you dedicated a particular day to dynamic effort work but most of the time when i've seen you squat or seen you do any lift it's usually fairly explosively especially on the deadlift and I, i i don't think you can i don't think you can train that enough to teach yourself like i'm gonna move really really freaking fast with this weight and if we go back to you know dr squat um, that's what he was proposing was uh, this idea. He called it compensatory acceleration. And basically you're just trying to move the weight as fast as you can, regardless of how much is on the bar. Now, when it comes to your everyday average person that doesn't have access to bands or chains or doesn't have these particular fancy racks or benches that they can hook bands to, they just want to use a little bit more weight you know, Jesse and I for a long time have been suggesting that people use around 50%. 50% is a good starting place just as your warm up set to kind of just get a feel for it. But realistically, the newer lifters need a higher percentage because they can't really draw on, on the same amount of uh, muscle fibers and so on as a more advanced athlete. And then in addition to that, if they don't have bands or chains, um, then they're going to want to use a higher percentage all the way up to, I think, 70% and sometimes even even a little higher. But just start with half. Um, but again, the weaker that you are or the newer that you are, you know, half of 100 pounds is not going to be very much weight. It's going to be hard to get a training effect off of that it's not relative um so you'll have to use a slightly higher percentage you might have to use 65 or 70 pounds which would be 65 or 70 percent what's up burdick yo boys how are we what you got for us over there buddy coffee (laughs) oh hey So we're talking about uh, some dynamic effort work, some speed work, and uh, and Simu was just kind of asking, um, you know, how somebody can implement it very easily. Uh, maybe if they don't have bands or chains, what are some of your thoughts? I would echo exactly what you said. Um, I think that, you know, I think a lot of it gets the, the whole intent of each day gets a little bit lost on a lot of people. Um because people start to, again, use a lot more weight than maybe they should. And then they kind of, and by doing that, they therefore lower their speed, lower their reps and lower their total overall volume. So it is important to kind of keep in mind that the 50 to 60% is, is there for a reason. And Mark can attest to this. If you truly go to Westside back in the day when they used to do their dynamic effort days, and I'm talking back in the day, it was, it was a dog fight to get into the bench or get into the rack or get into the monolith. There was no rest. You basically tried to drown people in their own sweat because that's how fast you were moving. 
Now, if you look at things with people putting two, three, four bands on, chains on, and taking 10 minutes in between sets, <laughs> you know, it's blurred to the point where that's not dynamic effort work. So if we go way, way back and start looking at, you know, what the root of everything was, you know, those lower percentage, very low um, rest periods, and just higher volume, because I mean, your sets were 15, 20, and sometimes you wouldn't quit until somebody quit. Um, and then you'd throw stuff in. I mean, very, very bodybuilding style. If you, you guys, if you kind of you guys might not know this, but me and Burdick used to go to war every weekend <laughs> <laughs> on squats, and uh, it was a fight. And I was, I was like, actually, you know, I could say it now. I was actually hoping that he died underneath the bar because I'm like, I just, Likewise. I just want, so, I want something <laughs> fucking horrible to happen to him because I can't keep up. I can't figure out any other way. And uh, I kept looking at him, and he kept looking at me. And I'm like, he's not going to stop. I'm like. He's fucking crazy. And we do set after set after set. And we're both ready to puke and hit the floor, looking all pale and just looking like we're going to die. Oh, but I mean, that's, that's how you get the most out of, you know, dynamic effort work is by like, I wish you'd just break his leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are some people, you know, that I've seen writing, you know, conjugate programs where their dynamic effort work is eight set. That's almost like why fucking bother to me. Mm hmm. You know, along with like the, the dynamic effort work, um, I think like years ago when I started like learning some stuff about programming, there was a trend within, uh, I would say there was a trend within, I guess you would call it social media fitness or whatever, where they'd talk about conjugate, but it'd always be like in a negative light. Like people would right. be like, conjugate has all these unnecessary frills and all these things that you don't have to do to get stronger. Um, and then as I started to learn about conjugate more, when I heard stuff from yourself and from Mark, I was like, there is a lot of really good stuff here. And I think that the reason why people discount conjugate is just because there is a lot of st stuff, but there's also just a lot of stuff to try to understand. It it's like there's there's more aspects to it than more people uh, than, than most people want to even really try to like get the hang of like dynamic effort days. Um, and then just like how to like max effort days and all the different types of movements that conjugate uses versus other types of programming. I think other types of programming, like you'll work with the SBD, you'll work with some simple accessories and you'll move on. But conjugate, there seems to be so many different types of accessories that you guys work with and try to improve upon week by week. That is just like, it's hard to, for, for an individual to try to keep track of. Yeah, it, it can be complicated. And I mean, I think that's also, you know, why, well, first of all, the conjugate got on social media, what it fucking deserves. Uh, because before you were on social media way, way back when anyone who didn't do conjugate or question conjugate got attacked, like mm. you're, you're stupid, you know, West side's the only way, blah, blah, blah. They got literally attacked. So they got their comeuppance when it came around and more people got on there and other people got strong without using conjugate. So, you know, it, they got kind of what they got there. And um, there's two people that come in mind that led that kind of anti-conjugate brigade. And if you really think about it, those are people who had a whole bunch of business to make and a lot of money to make off of trashing conjugate. And they did that and that was really unfortunate because you know, to go out there and, um, you know, market yourself by picking a fight with somebody, you know, is never, a, never a great way to do things. In my opinion, it's an uneducated way to do things, but you know, conjugate kind of deserved it because, you know, I've watched the whole evolution and it's something that, you know, 
should not have been said earlier. You know, people are too cocky about it. And then they kind of got trashed. But, you know, at the base of things, you don't, this is a, this started as a Russian Olympic lifting program. There was no bands. There was no chains. There was hardly any movements. The reason why there are so many movements is because the, um, the Russian coaches were trying to break down the, the, um, the lifts and start attacking their lifters weak point. And Louie kind of took that idea and just spread it out. And then you sprinkle in a little bit of ADD and a little bit of new stuff and some, <laughs> you know, machines and some, you know, some stuff from there. And then you, you your, your toolbox opens up from, you know, seven exercises to 47 exercises. But you don't need 47 exercises in order to get strong. I think every, you know, anyone who doesn't understand that at this point really needs to read a book or two. But you can, it just, just like everything, you can complicate the hell out of things, but you don't have to as well. Jesse, can you explain what a like a, a conjugate split would be for like a freezer case lifters that just have no experience with it? Sure. So dynamic effort is or um, conjugate program is going to basically be based around three kind of days, a, a max effort day, one lower, one upper, uh, where again, you're working towards some sort of heavy set. Um, that can be multiple sets or that can be one set. I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up on the max effort stuff. You know, well, how many, you know, how many sets? Like, I don't care. Just go until you can't go anymore. And that's your top set. Mm-hmm. Um, a dynamic effort days, one upper, one lower. And that's pretty much it. And then all the accessory stuff kind of falls underneath the um, rep effort or the jacked and tan effort uh, method, if you will. So usually you're going to have four days, two upper, two lower, one heavy and one speed or dynamic um, each week. And, uh, you know, again, if we go all the way back and we start to really do some reading and, uh, and look at things, um, aerobic conditioning, specifically sled dragging, was enormous enormously important in the conjugate program. So um, that again is something that's kind of completely lost on a lot of people where people are just rolling into the gym and starting going bar quarter plate, bar quarter plate, et cetera. And then they kind of move on. So, you know, you can ask Mark how many, you know, how many sled trips he took around West side, you know, how many I, you know, both Mark and I did at Diablo. I mean, it was half an hour before we even got into the gym. So there's a lot of things that kind of got lost. Um, and it's something that anyone who actually, really understands and knows um, just fitness in general, how important, you know, any sort of aerobic conditioning is. So that's always been a big part of conjugate, but that's not sexy. No one wants to hear you say that. And even if you did, no one's going to listen to you anyways. I mean, you know, again, Mark can attest to how many times Louie told all those fat slobs about, you know, they should be doing some more conditioning or doing some sled dragging or, Hey, come in on your off days. They never do it. And then, you know, they end up being 350 pounds and they have some sort of a stroke or a heart attack or a health scare. And they're yeah. like, man, powerlifting is so unhealthy. Like, well, yes and no. It's, uh, you know, there's always a little bit of a give and take. Yeah, the West Side stuff, um, for me, it really just helped explain a lot of training. You know, um, everything else made sense kind of off of the back of understanding West Side, understanding the information that Dave Tate put out there. Dave Tate was really pivotal in getting the message out there because he talked a lot about how to actually, you know, 
really run the program and and what it looks like when you're actually doing it. And he talked about like indicator lifts. You know, there would be certain lifts that you would do and you would learn from those lifts. And you'd be like, I actually think that that lift in particular, it's hard to really know. It's hard, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, but you would say like, oh, I think that safety squat bar, I actually think that that is responsible for making my back stronger on my deadlifts mm-hmm. because it's the only thing that's changed in my training and everything else is pretty cemented in there. And in some cases, somebody's like, I'm even deadlifting less often and the deadlift is going up. And I think it's because of that bar. Well, now you have that bar as an indicator lift. And as that goes up, you're probably going to see progression uh, somewhere else. And then the same thing, you know, with bench pressing, the same thing with uh, all the other movements. We take variations of those movements, a board press, a floor press, um, you know, variations of deadlifts. And then you start to see a lift go up and you're like, Hmm, I think that that's actually uh, really helping. And to speak about what Burdick was talking about, about, you know, guys ending up weighing, you know, a crazy amount of weight and being unhealthy. Yeah. Louie was always um, a huge proponent of getting a lot of work done in a short period of time. He wanted workouts for the most part, which later became impossible because guys started to squat 1200 pounds and stuff, but he wanted workouts to take about 45 minutes and he was really into multiple cool. workouts. He, he wanted you to work out, uh, you know, 12 times a day. I remember when I first met him and in the first seminar I went to, he's like, you need to be training like eight or nine times a day. And I'm thinking, shit, man, there's only seven days in a week. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to, you know, I don't know if this old man knows this, but, uh, I don't know how I'm going to make this work, but, he just meant like, you know, get in there and do, you know, one or two things. And even with the main workout, he wasn't scared to have the main workout be just two or three exercises. And when you would look at what Louie would recommend or suggest, I mean, it would be extremely rare. Maybe on an upper body day, you might have six exercises, but most lower body workouts, it's like you're going to box squat. You're going to do glute ham raises. You're going to do reverse hyper. And then you might do some sort of movement for abs and you're done. You're out. The hard part was squatting and, uh, and that was pretty much it. But yeah, super labor intensive on like the assistance exercises and stuff like that to really try to, um, build up not only hypertrophy, but conditioning and using low amounts of rest in between those sets. Is uh, conjugate responsible for all of the uh, specialty bars that we have? <laughs> I think uh, for some part, yes, but I mean, there was a lot of, you know, safety squat bar was not invented by Louie. Uh, Kamer bar, again, wasn't necessarily invented by Lou. I think the the specialty bars were, um, you know, something that people needed because they wanted to squat, but they had poor shoulder mobility or they couldn't get underneath there, or they figured out that they just couldn't squat with with a scrape bar all the time. So That's where Louie was a genius. Louie was a genius with that stuff because he wasn't like, yeah. hey, you need this bar to do my program. Right. He said, you need this bar because what happens if you injure your shoulder or you hurt your pec or you all these common injuries that powerlifters ran into. So he was really smart with how he kind of advertised that and how he presented, presented it to people. And I mean, he doesn't get enough credit as far as uh, the increase in bench pressing in powerlifting because of him introducing and really pushing to the forefront all the specialty bars because if it wasn't for that i don't know if people's shoulders would be able to hang in uh the way that they did through all the you know through everything i mean 
if we just talk about Mark when he was benching at his best, I mean, he barely, if ever, I mean, he could barely get under a straight bar at that uh, it, those days as well. So, I mean, if it wasn't a safety bar, it was a Kmart bar or it was nothing. What do you think, since we're talking about this, for because a lot of people are now setting up home gyms, um, mm-hmm. and, and some gyms are starting to close again because of some stuff that's happening. Yeah. Yes. So if somebody's trying to set up a home gym and they want to uh, get just very a very few amount of specialty bars, maybe for bench press, maybe for squat, um, what do you think would be the main bars that they should invest their money in that they can get the most bang for their buck to start applying some of the stuff you guys are talking about? In, in my opinion, I would probably, uh, again, if, you know, I always tell people to go on Craigslist because uh, you're going to find a lot of people who are kind of selling some stuff. But if money is an issue, the first thing I would probably get would be some sort of a buffalo or a duffalo bar. Um, the reason is, is you can use that for bench press and squat. Um, and it's very comfortable and you can use that without any real negative percussion uh, repercussions. Uh, it translates to a straight bar really, really easily. Like there's not much of a learning curve. It should sit the same way and you should be able to move with it the same way on your back. And then after that, I would probably say a safety squat bar and, or, um, uh, Duffin's transformer bar. And again, only because that's going to take the place of a lot of different bars um, you know, transformer bar, you can move it all sorts up and down and you can, you know, make it feel like a front squat, make it kind of, you know, a safety bar and then, uh, uh, some other stuff there. So I would try and look for, especially for, um, garage gym people, you know, bang for your buck, you know, this thing needs to be able to be used on multiple different levels for multiple different things. Mm-hmm. Something like a safety bar is awesome, but you can only squat with it or, you know, do some good mornings with the same thing with the, with a giant camera bar or camera bar. Maybe you can do some pressing with it here and there, but you're, you're limiting yourself uh, when you buy those bars. Uh, and, you know, if you get to go to a cool gym and you have the luxury of having all of those, then awesome. But, you know, if it's one or two bars, you know, you got to think bang for your buck and it would be kind of transform, transformer and duffalo bar. Yeah, and if you're trying to train um, other people with it and you have like a gym where you're bringing in other people, then you might want to look into a, you know, a trap bar deadlift. Those are nice mm-hmm. just to get you in a different position. Um, sometimes I think the lower body is the one where we sometimes lack uh, the creativity to come up with different different movements. But if you think about it, I mean, there are a lot of different movements you can do for the lower body. Um, you could do good mornings and stuff like that. Good mornings were a huge uh part of the West side barbell program, we actually just would rotate them in every three weeks. So we would squat or we would do some sort of variation of a deadlift. And if we didn't, um, then, or if we didn't, uh, you know, deadlift, then we would do a good morning. And if we didn't do a good morning, we'd do some type of deadlift. You kind of just rotated that around. Um, but it, you know, it was, it was always, uh, difficult to kind of figure out like what exercises you needed and, and, uh, you know, what, what bars you needed. It was confusing in the beginning. So in the beginning, when somebody's just starting this, I think you're best off with not too many options, you know, because yeah. you end up with kind of analysis paralysis where you're like, oh, I think I should use this bar. I think I should, you know, train this way for today. And it's like, you just have so many options where it's, it's a great thing to have. It's a great thing to walk into super training and to have all those options. But I m- remember how great the training was before we had all those options, we had to kind of just clamor like one thing and, and figure out variations of that. It's like, Oh, let's use this safety squat bar, but let's try it onto a box. That's only 12 inches off the ground or something like that. 
Mm-hmm. So for the uh, the newer lifters, or maybe just somebody who's never trained with uh, bands and chains, can you guys explain how using bands and chains can essentially condition a lifter to like get stronger? You know, to like really feel what it's like to have three fifteen at the top of a bench or that sort of thing. Because I know it, you know, a lot of people will see like, oh, you you kind of bench 315 but with chains you know like you didn't like there's an asterisk there so can you explain how that can condition somebody to become stronger so the term that everyone's going to kind of hear thrown around with bands and chains is accommodating resistance um and the whole idea is the weight is going to be heavier at the top of a lift whether it's the lockout or the lockout of a squat or the lockout of a deadlift and lighter at the bottom um and the whole idea is it's going to let you develop speed in uh in a lift and also allow you to be um you know you're going to be weakest in the hole of at the squat the start of a deadlift and when the bench is at at your chest so it's going to get heavier as you kind of go so it's going to allow you to fight through some more weight and then on top of that what you're kind of talking about is kind of the what louis recalled you know called the future method where you're going to start to condition your body to understand what you know 315 feels like in your hands it it may not be 315 on the bar because there's other stuff on there but in your central nervous system it's going to read like oh hey this is heavier and then also on top of that when you're bringing the bar down so i mean we'll we'll scoot deadlift over here for a second but as you're bringing you know the bar down squat or bench you're actually loading into your muscles more weight than you think is kind of on the bar, which is therefore going to allow you to produce more force as you kind of go through the, through the motion. Um, I have got, that's one of my pet peeves where it's just like, if you didn't bench 315, if 315 isn't on the bar and uh, something that Mark and I always talk about is it's like, don't, don't, don't put, it was this with this. It's just like, no, it's 225 with a red band and that's just it. Um, so that's kind of a pet peeve for me. But, you know, it will, it does help. It really does help get people kind of get over because, you know, like it or not, there's a huge mental side to lifting. And, um, you know, people see three plates on the bar. Sometimes they freak the fuck out. And um, if you can get that feel for that weight and get people comfortable with that weight and comfortable being uncomfortable, when the time comes, they should be able to kind of execute it without really having a second thought because it doesn't register as an oh shit moment for those people. I think people had a hard time uh, extracting <laughs> out the information from West side barbell. Um, right. A lot of so, times, though, right? Yeah. A lot of times because, because of some of the stuff we're bringing up here, it's like, it can get a little bit confusing. It doesn't have to be, you know, there's bench squat deadlift. And then what is West side really trying to do is trying to have you focus in on your weak points. You bring those up and you become strong. Um, but I think that, you know, maybe people were people were viewing Louie um, as like a crazy old man. And then in addition to that, I think that people were also um, putting him in a particular category because the lifters use gear um, and they're open about their use of, of performance enhancing drugs. And so I think those two things combined, um, the fact that they were in powerlifting gear <clears throat> when the raw movement came to be, I think much like somebody might have a hard time extrapolating great information from a Tony Robbins because they just don't like his vibe. Uh, they don't understand that there could be really valuable things in there. Just like you might, you might listen to a, a preacher or something and you're not religious, but you might be missing the point that, <clears throat> 
there's some really amazing information that you can extract from this individual. Who cares, uh, you know, what some of their beliefs are, what some of their other things are. You can still extract great information. And Jesse and I, you know, going around doing seminars and, and uh, we did a lot of powerlifting certification courses for CrossFit and things like that. You know, getting around to that community and getting around to see so many different individuals and, and see so many different people over the years, we just learned, hey, look, man, you can learn from any, anybody. And I think that Jesse and I grew tremendously at that time because now we weren't working with the, we weren't working with the average power lifter. We were working with, you know, somebody that looked a lot different, somebody that might've weighed 160 pounds uh, that was trying to get, you know, better times and they were trying to become more fit along with, they wanted a cool squat, you know, they wanted a 405 squat and things like that. But once we started to see how well it worked for those individuals, um, it, it started to even make more sense to us and started to be even easier to utilize for people. And then Jesse went on and, and over the years has coached pretty much every single sport you can think of. Um, but a lot of a lot of baseball players, and I think a misinterpretation of the West Side method is that it's for strength and that it's for powerlifting. I think it's actually better for other sports than it even is for powerlifting. I think it I think it can work really well for powerlifting, but I think that most people who have the most success using West Side, sprinkle in some type of periodization or sprinkle in the regular exercises more often when they're when they're raw power lifters. Um, because we're asked to squat, bench, and deadlift. That's our job. That's what we get, quote, unquote, paid for. That's how we make our money, so to speak, right? That's how you get judged <laughs> is you bench, squat, and deadlift, right? But if you're a baseball player, no one's judging your squat. No one's judging your deadlift. And so that's where the variation becomes huge. It's like, oh, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. So it doesn't really matter 100% whether I went four inches deep on my squat because I'm competing in a particular federation or whatever it might be. Now it's like we can bring in the – it's like, hey, let's just get your hips to be strong. Yeah. Let's see your hips move real well. Let's get you out wide on a box squat and let's have you do a bunch of dynamic work to where you're moving quickly, moving fast. And we're not really breaking down too much. We're not like hurting. We're not really hurting you much. You're not going to be super West side stuff. A lot of times you don't get super sore from it. If it's new to you, you might get pretty wrecked, but in general, it's not something you're going to get really sore with. So I think that's a, uh, I think that's lost. I mean, Dave Hoff has been smashing, you know, world record weights that no one's hit um, ever before. And he's been doing so for like a decade. And there's a lot of other lifters at Westside that have done the same thing. And those are full time. Those are power lifters. You know, once we start to think about other people that have been utilizing Westside, I've been using it for, you know, over 20 years. And, uh, I, I still can do all the lifts just fine. I still feel really good. Anytime I want to kick it up a notch and, and lift a little bit more weight, um, I still think at any time I can bench 500 pounds if I just, you know, put my mind to it and start feeling like doing it again. Um, so I think it's amazing for like longevity and for sport. That's exactly what I was going to ask you because the way that you guys or yeah, the way that you guys seem to set it up, there is a max effort day, but it's not like, when you see certain lifters doing some max effort work in other types of programs, they'll do like a 90% load for doubles and multiple sets of that on a certain day. But it seems that like, you know, you have your dynamic days and your max effort day. It's like you, you kind of touch it, you sprinkle it, and then you get out of there. Is that how it, is that one of the reasons why like 
I guess it can be so good for longevity. Uh, I would agree. Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, they're the, the, the cool thing with powerlifting is, you know, it's just throw some weight on the bar and, you know, it, it you know, if you do play in 90% plus, you're just going to get stronger period. But, um, how long can you do that? You know, what's your stress level? You know, how old are you? There's a lot of other factors that can kind of come into you being able to do repeated 90% lifts on a day and then be able to recover and have any sort of a day, you know, whether it's 24 or 48 hours later. Um, and you know, I would always challenge people like, okay, cool. You just did six reps of 90% plus. That's awesome. How do they look? Did they look good? Like if, if your first 90% effort looks like dog shit, why are you going to do five more? Well, because the program said like, okay. Um, that's kind of the cool thing with, um, with the setup of, uh, conjugate for me is that it really explains the intent of each day. It's go until you don't have anything left. Should probably leave maybe one in the tank. But if you go up to, if you get to 85% and it looks awful, see it, man, I'm out of here. That's good. Don't, don't go anymore because the risk to reward ratio just starts to get way out of whack. And then this is how people get hurt. They, and then they mm. repeatedly get hurt and go from there. And then with the dynamic effort day, you know, it's just a, it's clear. It's like, look, we're going to learn how to produce force with perfect form and we're going to get a ton of volume in and it's going to be fast and you guys should be exhausted by the time you're out of here. Um, I think, you know, uh, someone like Mark, myself, someone like Matt Wenning, um, you know, Greg Kenora have been using the conjugate method for an extremely long time. Um, and I think personally, the, the guy who does it the best is Eric Cressy, who you guys may or may not know, but he, he is the, uh, premier baseball trainer in the world at this point. And he just had a question asked about, you know, the conjugate system for baseball players. And he kind of had the same answer that Mark and I had is like, look, every program that I've written for the past 25 years has been conjugate influence. Um, it's a great program because you can move things in and out and you can focus on certain things. And for sport, you need to be able to do all these things in powerlifting. You only need to be strong. So you can just do 90% stuff, but in a sport, you need to be able to be fast. You need to be explosive. You need to be strong change direction, absorb force, produce force, you know, all these things, be aerobic and anaerobically conditioned and do it all at the same time. If you're looking at a block method or something else, you may be higher or lower on one as you kind of go along, as you make your way towards a goal. But with conjugate, it all kind of happens at the same time. And that's why some of those max effort lifts may not be as gym impressive or as impressive for the grams that it, as it is. So, you know, for sport, I think it's a great way to, you know, sprinkle in anything and everything and all the qualities of fitness that you need in order to be good for your sport. But the question always kind of gets screwed up where it's like, is conjugate good for sport? Yes. Is West Side barbell method good for sport? And the answer is no. Yeah. That's for powerlifting. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Jesse, I don't think we, well, I, I know I don't know, but like, um, I don't think we ever got your story about how you found yourself at West Side Barbell. Um, so in, <laughs> in college as a baseball player, uh, somewhere around my, I think my sophomore year, I found, um, I, I found the internet 
and I found a lot of stuff about working out and I wanted to be bigger and I wanted to be stronger. So naturally, you know, I started to do a bunch of bodybuilding and, um, it just so happened that the strength and conditioning coach at my school was a guy named Paul Childress, uh, who was the, uh, all time world record holder squat and total, uh, in the 308 class at that moment in time. And he told me, he's like, Hey man, you know, you're, you know, for, for a baseball player, you're doing, you shouldn't really be working out three days a week. And, you know, you really shouldn't be doing all these, you know, peck deck and flies and everything. And, you know, I turned around and told him right to his face that he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about and to leave me alone. <laughs> um, and then about like two years later, I realized who he was and, you know, the, the knowledge that he had, and I came crawling back to him and, you know, asked him to, uh, forgive me and, uh, to help me out, to help me kind of learn. And, um, to his credit, you know, Paul's an awesome person and he, you know, he was just like, yeah, yeah, I'll help you out. And like for the first couple of weeks, I mean, he just fucking buried he just completely buried me. He made me hurt so, so bad. So that was kind of my penance for calling him out on it. But, you know, he started to teach me, you know, the intricacies of the program. And, you know, he was, the, Paul Childress has also been training, you know, NFL, NHL, Major League Baseball guys for 30 years at this point, maybe even longer. One of the smarter people that I know. Um, so I had a really, really good mentor in kind of understanding the program. <clears throat> and what was extra special about Paul was he had a direct line to Louie. He was one of Louie's favorite people of all time. Um, and I really do think it's because of how intelligent Paul was. So when I ended up moving out to California, you know, my network of powerlifters was actually pretty vast. And I was able to go ahead and, you know, reach out to people. And um, whenever I would be able to go back home to visit my family in Pennsylvania, I would always end up spending, you know, three, four days at, at Westside. And, um, you know, it was because of, Paul, but uh, introducing me to Louie, Dave, and, um, and Jim, but also more than anything, I just kind of had the audacity to, you know, I was one of those people and Mark was one of those people where I, you know, it, back in the day in the, um, in Louie would put his name, his phone number and his address at the bottom of all of his articles. So one day I was just like, huh, I wonder if he'll actually answer if this is him or if this is the gym or what is this? I called him and hello, <laughs> like, uh, is this Louis Simmons? He's like, what yep. side? <laughs> what side? Um, and I was just like, I was, I was thrown back because I didn't, um, I didn't expect it. And he was unbelievably gracious with his time. And, uh, you know, we developed a relationship over, you know, five, 10 years. And whenever I was in town, he'd welcome me in and he'd take me out. And, you know, I got to know Doris and it was amazing because, uh, and, and all because I, uh, told my original strength and conditioning <laughs> coach that he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know, when it, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was curious more because um, one of the things that I don't know if it came from conjugate, but I know that I initially learned about all of the benefits because of conjugate uh, was the box squat and all like the different like. Well, one thing I noticed was that like I didn't even realize during the box squat a lot of guys would switch up their foot position. And I was like, why are you in the middle of a session switching where your feet are on this squat that you're doing? So uh, I think the box squat's so cool because again, like I mentioned, something easy that people can add into their home gym and add aspect of conjugate into their, into their uh, program is the box squat and the different variations that come with it. So I want to ask you guys, like, uh, why, like, what would be the main benefits of that for lifters? Um, and then how can they, yeah, what kind of variations can they do with that box squat to to enhance it for their for their strength? 
ox squat, as far as I know, and it may date back even further than this, but it came from a gym called Westside Barbell, which was in uh, Culver City, California. Um, and the guy's name was uh, Ed West. So uh, I think he called it Westside because of his last name. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did box squats like really often. My understanding is they would box squat like three times a week and they just got tremendously strong from that. And they recognized um, not only were they getting strong, but they were able to recover from their workouts because you just didn't have that, you know, that reversal strength that's required of a regular squat, but they were still getting strong when they went to a regular squat. So they just kept using it more and more and more. And I think when Louie uh, brought it into his program, uh, I think he maybe thought three times a week was a little excessive. And so he brought it back down to like one or two, depending on uh, what the, uh, what the week called for. But I think that one of the massive benefits of a box squat is it allows you to train in a position that you otherwise would just have a lot of difficulty in getting into without the box there. Um, now, sometimes that can be a crutch because like if you're going to, if you're trying to be a power lifter, then you better know how to squat. Like you need, you need to learn how to actually do, do the movement itself. But, um, and people can argue with me on this point, but this is my opinion. I think a box is the best way to teach someone how to squat. Um, it just, it just uh, works really well universally because most people struggle with having good movement patterns and most people are going to kind of lean forward at the torso because they got tight hips or something like that. A box squat, you can take anybody. And you can have them per- perform a very upright lift, a very upright squat on a box, just as long as the box is high enough for them. And as long as their feet aren't too far apart, you can really get it figured out. And the way that Jesse and I used to teach it is we would start people sitting on the box or sitting on a chair and we'd say, okay, you know, get up from there. Then we would like kind of make some corrections. We'd have some error correction right from that point. We'd say, okay, kick your feet, you know, towards me a little bit more away from the chair so that your uh, shins are, are straight up and down. And they would do that. And then they're like, how the hell do I get up from here? And we're like, exactly. It becomes pretty damn challenging. You have to kind of force your knees out. You got to arch your back. You have to basically do all these things that you otherwise would have to do in a squat uh, if you knew how to squat. So it kind of almost, it almost like forces you to squat better in some, in some weird way. And then over a period of time, you can bring that box height down as somebody gets used to it. The different foot positions that you mentioned, that's a really great observation. I remember for many, many years, people would say, oh, you know, when you play sports, you know, your feet aren't really that wide and, but it's like I, I beg someone listening to this right now to, to show me a sport where your feet are really close together. Um, think about sprawling. Think about trying to take someone down like in a fight or in jujitsu. How often do your feet end up really far apart? Think about somebody that's not great at power cleans but is still pretty strong, how far apart their feet end up. Think about a baseball player throwing a ball from third base to first base, uh, how far, how wide they get. Think about a baseball player stepping into a pitch and smacking the ball as hard as they can. Um, think about a quarterback throwing a, you know, a 60-yard touchdown pass their feet aren't tied together their feet are going to be really uh, opened up think about changing direction playing tennis um it, just any sport i mean you're going to have now i'm not a fan and neither is jesse necessarily of like saying hey like that happens on the field so let's add a bunch of weight to that and and let's bring it in house and, and bring it into the gym however 
I do think it's applicable and I do think it helps a lot. And so that's kind of the reason for some of the different foot position is just to try to work some weak areas and try to bring some of those areas up. I would say that for a lot of people that I've helped over the years, um, having them squat wider, like wider, wider, wider to the point where they're super uncomfortable has almost always been of benefit. Uh, however, you do need to be a little cautious. You, you can, you know, you can tweak somebody if they're not used to those new positions, even being out an inch on each side. Uh, it can really be a, a weird experience if you're not used to it. But I, I think it can help a lot of people. And most of the time, what we've noticed is it helps people even when they bring their stance back in. Since kind of bringing your stance back in, you're just less exposed. You're you're keeping everything a little bit more compact. And so that's some of my thoughts on it. Burdick, what you got? Uh, I think box squat is extremely unique in the fact that um, – you can, it's a benefit to the beginner lifter and also the advanced lifter and also advanced athletes. And I think the real reason, um, just kind of building on what Mark talked about is the fact that it really teaches true hip extension. So, I mean, to, in order to, you know, get yourself here and be able to kind of come through, you know, very, very few people are able to kind of push their hips back or they're comfortable doing that, or they understand how to do that. So you're thinking about the squat, you think about the deadlift, you think about any athletic move, it's always, you know, going to be predicated upon hip extension. And I think it really teaches that. And I think it's a great way to teach beginners and you can vary it for so many people, whether it's, you know, the elderly population or a really big population or, you know, advanced athletes, everybody can kind of benefit from this. And it's also one of those things where like Mark touched upon, it's not going to have such an eccentric load to it where it's going to just, mash you and make you super sore which you know if you're um dealing with populations other than powerlifters, sometimes those people don't want to be that sore and they shouldn't be that sore especially if they have to go perform on a field somewhere so i think it's uh, extremely beneficial in in those terms and i think just like anything that we talk about it's kind of got a bad rap for reasons other than what it was intended for um, it was intended to kind of be a break from free squatting to allow you to be able to squat more weight into a certain point for people who are having depth problems or whatever. And then it got blurred to the point of only box squat and then only box squat wide, only box squat with your feet turned super, super wide out. And that's the only way to do it. There's so many different ways to do the box squat and benefit from it. But people forget that again, because it's, west side or die you know what i mean the west side program calls for this and if that's not it it's not a box spot so it's fucking dumb and mm -hmm. there couldn't be anything further from the truth there's so many benefits from from box squatting and um i think it's you know it's one of those things where you know again kind of you kind of get what you know your comeuppance for you know yelling on the internet mm -hmm. first um but i really do think you know when people actually sit down and think about it they're like, oh, yeah, I see the benefit of it. It can it can really be a help uh, more than necessarily a hindrance where, you know, some people were saying that, you know, even, you know, still to this day. Hmm. We got our buddy, uh, Dr. Sean Baker, who still utilizes box squats and he'll do, you know, 315 for sets of like 30 reps. Um, he can squat, you know, five plates for a handful of reps as well. And he's, you know, he's into his fifties. Um, and he's also like six, five or six, six, you know? Yeah, so I'll some do. athletes, you know, when we start to, you start to deal with athletes of a high level, 
Uh, they're not usually short, they're usually pretty tall. And a squat gets to be pretty confusing. You know, you start to see someone like a LeBron James try to squat. And it's like, man, that's a lot of body to try to organize. And, you know, people get, they criticize and they say, oh man, that's a crappy squat. But it's like, well, you don't really know what it's like to be six, eight, you know what I mean? And, and to try to get all those body parts uh, heading in the right direction. Uh, I remember Kobe Bryant used to do box squats. I remember seeing him at, at Gold's Gym. He had a, a trainer that was really big into the West Side Method and uh, Kobe was on some commercials using like bands and chains and the reverse hyper and, and those different things. But I think, yeah, with, with the bigger athletes, taller athletes, it's a no brainer to try to get them to squat onto a box. That's, uh, you know, maybe even slightly above parallel just, just for their own health, but they can still train their legs really well. I know the, uh, the, the end goal would change this answer, but let's just say for a competitive athlete in powerlifting, how often would that athlete want to mix in box squats to normal squats uh that that's going to depend on a lot of things but Mm -hmm. if you know if if he's someone who's asking my advice i would say that um you know i try and switch up um uh, we have a max effort box squat once a month we have a max effort free squat once a month and on our dynamic days we'll squat to a box for two weeks and then we'll squat free for two weeks I think that again, because of how lost and I'm certainly guilty of it too. Um, people got on making sure you're box squatting all the time. A lot of people specifically following conjugate forgot how to squat without a box. And, you know, they get down to parallel and they have no balance and they don't understand what to do because they don't have that box to push off of. Um, so I would say rotating it, you know, every other <clears throat> max effort squat or every kind of third max effort squat and, you know, rotating between a free and a box squat on your dynamic effort days. I think that that's, that's not going to overload either one. You can recover from all of it. And it's just enough variance that, you know, it, it stays fun and cool in your head. If you're not required to do a squat, you know, because you're not going to do a competition. Right. Um, then I, I really would advise that you pretty much just do them all the time. Um, especially if you have uh, any sort of injuries, you got like some knee tendonitis or something's bothering you. Um, I don't see anything wrong with utilizing them pretty much all the time. Now, if you are bodybuilding or you have a specific reason on, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, you know, you're trying to bring up your legs a certain way, then, then maybe it wouldn't be wise to use them. But I think, I think box squats are awesome. You know, I'm a huge proponent of them. Um, and I just think, I can't think of, and I, and I don't know, uh, I don't know like hundreds of them, but I know a lot of strength coaches, probably, probably at least 40 or 50 of them that I can think of that are just in my phone that I have, you know, communication with. I can't think of one of them that doesn't utilize box squats very, very often. When I went to the New York Jets, they were box squatting. I know Coach House is a huge proponent of box squats. He's no longer part of the NFL. Um, I know Mark Uyama is a huge proponent of box squats. And again, these are people that are dealing with athletes that are just they're they're different man they're they're extraordinary athletes um they can move their bodies in all kinds of crazy ways on the field but a lot of times they're pretty darn tall and it gets to be difficult on trying to like how to figure out how am i going they're not going to squat like a five foot six uh olympic lifter you know they're not going to squat like uh like a rich froning or a matt frazier or something like that it's just they're they're too long limbed and not thick enough to really execute that way and it would take forever to try to teach that Mm -hmm. 
How about like now, now that we're talking about movements that I guess would help save an athlete from not like, not just fatigue, but also from injury, um, like floor presses, as far as the bench press is concerned. And then as far as the deadlifts con- is concerned, um, box deadlifts for athletes, how, like how beneficial would you guys say that some of those movements are? Um, for, for the pressing side of things, I think, again, if we're talking about athletes, like, uh, Mark mentioned, you know, <clears throat> if we're talking about pitchers or overhead athletes, whether that's swimmers, volleyball, tennis, um, uh, quarterback, et cetera, you really, especially for a lot of athletes, they don't know how to bench press, right? So I think putting in some sort of a board to stop them before it gets really fucking terrible, which is basically the same thing as a box squat, you know, stopping them before they just get, just before they get, you know, knees come in, et cetera. I think those can be really, really beneficial and it can teach people without kind of getting them hurt. Um, uh, on the deadlift, by box deadlift, you mean like um, platforms, platforms under or, the plate, platforms okay. under the plates. Cool. So, I mean, I think that that, again, kind of similar to the box squat, it can, you know, some people, some athletes, whether they're long limbed or they're just not trained very well in the weight room, uh, they may have trouble getting down to that starting position. So starting them when they can look and, you know, uh, exemplify a good form, you know, why not start them here opposed to kind of starting them down here where they look just terrible, get them strong here and then try and kind of work it down. Um, How many people did we see struggle? You know, we're we're talking about getting down to a deadlift bar and it sounds so common to us, but uh, for a lot of people, it was a challenge when we, when Jesse and I would go and teach uh, seminars, we'd say, okay, you know, try to keep your back flat. And then it would go down like, no, no, you're like your lower, try to keep your lower back flat. And then it would go down again to grab the bar and like, no, you're you're still, they're like, am I doing it? You're like, no. (laughs) And that was kind of where, where I came up with the idea for those wagon wheels was like, Hey, if I can just figure out a way to get that bar higher off the ground, mm-hmm. um, then you, it's not like you want to have a permanent bandaid for that situation either. It's not like you're never going to teach the person how to do a regular deadlift, but if they're not asked to do a regular deadlift in competition, then really doesn't matter if they, you know, are able to move down four or five, six inches more. It may be because it might be uh, conducive for their just general health, getting their shoes on and stuff like that in the morning. So it might be something to work on. But when you try, what I've learned is when I force myself into positions that don't feel great for me, I, get, I usually get hurt. You know, and if I, if I have a soft back on a deadlift because the weights are a little bit too heavy, or if I'm super tight and really struggling to get in a position, if I'm now, you know, smashing myself or really forcing myself in a position, uh, almost every single time I tweak something. So, uh, I've learned over the years that that's, (laughs) that's not a great way to do it. I'd rather do a partial range of motion as we're talking about here. One thing that I've just... I've never really been able to figure out and I've seen it a lot because people that I've talked to when it comes to the deadlift, it's like, um, if I rip it off the ground, I can do at least two, but get initial pull is like impossible at times. Like Mark, you've seen me do it. I'm sure you guys have coached tons of people that have struggled with just ripping it off the ground. But once it gets going, it's like, Oh, for sure it's going up. If somebody is struggling with that, what can they do to help fight that initial pull? Cause that seems to be where like the, Again, the initial rip off the ground is like the hardest point for someone like me who's still trying to get their, uh, you know, trying to find their way. I think uh, most of the time that's going to be due to probably two things, um, uh, weaker legs. 
and then also poor setup. <clears throat> so what do we do for weaker legs? We just get your legs strong. You know what I mean? Close stance, high bar box squats, leg presses, lunges, step ups, single leg stuff. Uh, and then form wise, I think one of the best things that I've kind of discovered is really start, especially on the deadlift is having a slow eccentric, you know, working with lighter weight, pull to the top and then really slowly putting your, putting the bar back down, just kind of touch the ground and then kind of repeat that over and over and over again. And the reason why that's really important is you'll figure out and you'll get comfortable with where you're most likely to pull the bar off, where you're going to be the strongest. So doing that, I've found out whether it's conventional or sumo, uh, if we slow down the eccentric, you're going to find where you want, where your body wants to start. And then you'll get comfortable and then you'll understand where that is. You'll be able to feel it. And then most likely you'll be able to get back to that position a little bit more often. And what about like just using bands, like reverse bands? Uh, no, I think that's going to go ahead and encourage you to rip the bar off the floor a little bit more because the, the harder you yank, the more those bands are going to work with you. Um, I really, you know, if, if people who are starting, you know, having problems start off the floor, it's always, you know, leg strength, uh, kind of doing those slow eccentrics and then maybe actually forcing you, putting you on something and actually doing a little bit of deficit pull. So you learn how to use your legs in the bottom. I had a lifter who ended up, you know, she ended up deadlifting over 400 pounds, but, um, she could deadlift more off of a deficit, um, than she could off the floor for a while. And that was because she just couldn't understand how to stack herself there. So we would actually go to a meet and bring a platform and have her warm up on the platform just so she could get that, that feel over and over and over again to use her legs. And then that, that really helped propel her. I think she ended up, you know, uh, putting another 70 or 80 pounds on, on her deadlift from 300 all the way up to like 420 or something along those lines. So classically in those situations, that's what you're going to kind of, that's where I would tell you to kind of fix things. I think when Jesse and I think about how somebody lifts, um, we're also thinking about that person, especially because um, Jesse does a lot of online coaching, um, but he also you help people in person and you care about these people. And so while you might say, yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool that you did the 500 pound deadlift, but uh, you know, you, we, we really got to get you away from really ripping these weights off the ground the way that you're doing it, because I, I don't want to see you, you know, limping through here. I want you to be able to do this uh, for a long time. So it might be something similar to maybe like hitting a heavy bag, you know, like, yeah, you want to like fuck the heavy bag up and you want to like smash the crap out of it. But do you want to smash it so hard and so crazy that it's to the detriment of you not being able to breathe well, um, the detriment of your hands, like you could jack up your wrist and your and your uh, fists and stuff like that. If you just went completely haywire on it, right, if you just went completely crazy and really let loose, especially if you're not a pro, like if you haven't been doing it for a long time. And I think the same thing is true of like a deadlift, a squat, a bench. Yeah, it's okay to your hips came off the bench. That's fine. Not a huge deal. But over a long period of time, we don't want those things to happen because that could potentially cause a problem with your shoulder. If you're ripping the weights off the ground on the deadlift and you're starting getting a, a little bit of a cat back type of thing, it's like you might be able to get away with it for a while. And some people have great genetics and they can get away with it for a pretty long time. They can pull 600, 700. But once they start getting into those heavier weights, uh, the problem is going to rear its ugly head and, you know, take it from somebody that, you know, tried for a long time, the bench press 600 pounds. I ended up with some 
not such great habits in the bench press that later on they would just, they would catch up to me. So I ended up with a, you're going to end up with a, a limit. And a lot of times the limit is just yourself. You're just in your own way. And so you have to really constantly try to examine like, how are we going about doing this lift? Because if you can figure out the most optimal way, you should be able to, for a long period of time, make a lot of progress and not get all jacked up. Now, I'm curious about this too. When Andrew uh, did mention ripping the bar off the ground, I think in this kind of, uh, this more so would apply to newer lifters, but especially when deadlifting, um, it seems that they're not really used to taking slack out of the bar before they start their pool. And then when they just start the pool, it, it, because they haven't taken any slack out, they just get pulled out of position and it just wrecks everything. So when you were talking about the setup, um, how is it that you help people learn the aspect of pulling slack out of the bar before you start your pull? Because when you control the eccentrics, you get back into position, the slack usually is already out of the bar. So that's why every other pull looks so great. And your very first one looks like absolute dog crap. I, I, uh, and I think Mark would agree with me here. I completely blame this on uh, Dan Green for the whole internet trying to rip the bar off the floor. Uh, But what's amazing about someone like him, someone like Kaylor, someone like Jeremy, um, these people yank the bar and they actually pull themselves into position Mm. where everyone else in the world yanks on the bar and pulls themselves out of position. And the reason that they can do it and you can't, is because your name ain't Dan Green, you ain't Kayla Willem, you're not Jeremy Avila. You're just not. And that's okay. Uh, you can still deadlift a lot. You can still be very successful. Um, what Mark and I used to think about and what we used to teach is, you know, you have a collar uh, of the plate. And if you actually pull, you should actually hear a little tink or a little, a little bit of a click. Mm-hmm. And that is telling you that you have a little bit of that slack out of the bar and then you kind of come back and then you can kind of start your process. And we would always video people who would yank the bar off and they would get into like this weird position, you know, and the, the bar wouldn't actually move until their hips were here. So they would be starting here. So a couple of things we would do is listen, you know, try and get that slack out of that bar. And if they couldn't really feel it, listen for, you know, kind of that feedback. And also just more than anything, starting them when that actual bar starts to move off the ground. Now it may take a little bit more time, in order for the bars to start to move off the ground, but opposed to starting in a full squat and then yanking as hard as you can. And then your hips are up here and then the bar starts to move. Just start with your hips up here. You're, you're getting yourself into the same spot and you can actually be a little bit safer, but um, yeah, for, for the slack on the bar, it's just practicing that. I think something that was really um, revolutionary for, for me personally uh, in, in the sumo deadlift was actually putting a box behind me. And I would kind of get in position and I would try and pull myself into position and just sit on a really, really high box. And I wouldn't, I would try to just uh, levitate those plates just a little bit. And as it got heavier and heavier, they would actually not leave. And then I would just kind of get the, the slack out of that bar and I would be able to understand what good position was and how to pull myself in there. So um, it's always going to be a little bit different for people and a lot of times the background that they have coming into it is going to, um, I've always, any Olympic lifter that I've tried to teach deadlift always kind of yanks the bar because that's what they've been taught. So there's no real way to slow those people down. You just have to get them really, really brutally strong more than anything, uh, in those cases. I remember Ed Cohn would say that he would pull himself into position so tightly that, uh, 
seven plates would just like basically start to hover off the ground. And he just felt like yeah. it was completely effortless. Now somebody listening is like, Whoa, like that's, <laughs> that's pretty wild. How do you make, you know, nearly 700 pounds feel weightless? Well, you may be able to achieve, achieve the same exact thing. It just might be with a lot less weight. It might be with like a hundred pounds or 135 pounds, but that's something that that's something to work on. And I, I liked what Jesse said earlier about lowering the weights slow I think that can be a huge benefit, whether you're sumo or conventional, because now you're when you lower yourself, you got to make sure at the bottom. What I see, Pete, where I see people mess this up is at the bottom. They fall. Make sure you don't fall. Don't fall that last like two inches, that last three inches. Don't collapse onto the floor and let go of your upper back. I see a lot of people do that. Make sure you're really being super strict with it, even if it means you have to use a lot less weight. Another thing that works really well is just to pull on weights to pull on the bar, um, get yourself in a good deadlift position, set up the best that you possibly can. We want to try to have our back flat. We want to try to get our hips uh, lower than our shoulders. So get yourself in a good position. Once you're in that good position, utilize the bar to pull yourself into an even better position. And as you're doing that, you should be able to make 95 pounds float off the ground, 135 float off the ground, 185, depending on your strength level. Um, But it is something that's good to practice. And you can even use, rather than thinking of like pause deadlifts, which are popular and super effective, by the way, I I like that exercise a lot. But I think one of the things that that exercise teaches you basically is the same thing I'm talking about here is just try to get those weights to hover off the ground a little bit by being in a good, strong position and then follow through and, and finish the lift and see you'll see how that feels for you. I think there's a lot that you can learn from that. And I also think there's not really uh, there's not a reason why you can't implement that right away and bring that right into your program now and uh, start to utilize that while you're warming up for your deadlifts for the day. Yeah. Is there like slack at one plate, you know, like, is there anything there or is it with somebody just there start is. focusing? There on, is. Yeah. Because, okay. well, so like, you know, just, uh, logistically the, the plate itself has to be, especially if it's a metal plate. Now, if it's a bumper plate, it might not make the same noise, but the hole has to be bigger than the, uh, actual sleeve of the bar, right. For this whole thing to, to work out the correct way. So when you slide it on, you'll notice that the, there's some slack there, right? There's some give, there's some, there's some room in there and that's the noise that you're going to end up hearing is you're going to end up hearing kind of the metal on metal uh, the the collar and also what's inside of the uh, plate and so yeah you can you can pull that slack out of there and sometimes if you have really thin plates uh, skinny plates they will um, go from kind of being like sagged like outward or inward to being you know completely erect so to speak hey hey now I think about what Andrew mentioned there is really, um, uh, it really helps a lot because when you see athletes like, um, uh, you know, they're doing maybe some speed work or something with lighter loads, um, they won't treat those lighter loads like they would. They're, you know, close to max loads. The lift looks super different because they're moving super fast. They don't take as, they don't try to take slack out of the bar. They just move fast and it's like a different lift. So I think it's, it's really, that's a really important thing to remember that maybe not one plate, but when you're starting to work with like 50, 60% or something, you want to treat that like it's 90, whatever. You want to treat it like it's a heavier lift as you're going faster with it. And Seema, what do you do? What do you do personally with the bar bend? Because, you know, you're, you're lifting some damn big weights on a deadlift of 755 uh, deadlift. What are you doing with the uh, bend of the bar? Because you seem to pull the slack out well. I noticed the bar is pretty bent before the weights leave the floor. The bar bend. 
Um, I don't. What do you mean exactly? Like, how do you get? How do you actualize your start position? Oh, um, I pull before I uh, before I start bringing my hips down to the bar. I pull on the bar while keeping my arms long, so I don't like you know my elbows don't flex. I pull on the bar and then I bring my hips down into position, and it kind of just it just it's like um what's that thing you use to, to pull the the bar off the ground i forgot the name of oh the, yeah the deadlift jack it's it's kind of like a deadlift jack that's that's kind of how i look at it um and, and leverage yeah yeah and it, it really helps me just get into a good deadlift position does does a deadlift position. bar make any difference for you or have you noticed a big difference between a deadlift bar and a regular bar yeah the, a deadlift bar because it's more whippy it'll um it'll I'll get more bend out of that when moving with heavier loads. Like it'll stay on the ground a little bit longer. Um, I think uh, with a, with a stiff bar, I can, it's, it's not hard for me to lift with a stiff bar, but it is a little bit, I have to be more cognizant about holding position better. I feel like with the deadlift bar, I'm able to, even if if I'm a little bit lazier, I can still get myself into a a good position when I'm not being as. Yeah. I think a deadlift bar as the bar bends, I think it, uh, it's going to sound weird to say it, but it's a slightly less range of motion of a deadlift because you pulled the bar off the ground a little bit. You're in a little bit better position. And you notice that when somebody does like two or three reps on a deadlift, especially with a deadlift bar and they're kind of touching and going on the ground, it is a partial range of motion now because the bar is so bent and because the weights are hitting the ground earlier than they would if the bar wasn't bent. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and Seema, are you still uh, doing hook grip? Yeah, always. Yeah. God, mm-hmm. how, how do you, just for somebody else listening, like how do you develop the hook grip? Because it, like, I mean, for one, it, it hurts like hell, but two, like it, I can't even get my <laughs> thumb all the way around, you know? Yeah, when I watched videos on it, um, like uh, it, it took me, uh, I think a good four months to get used to like the, mm. the feeling of it. Cause it was really painful. And my thumbs would get really raw. I think there are some smarter people out there who talk about like taping up the thumbs too, when you're, as you're you know getting used to it. So you don't have to go through all that pain, but I, I really wasn't that smart. <laughs> so I just, I just grabbed the bar and I just went for it. And even as it hurt, I just, you know, I built the calluses there. So I don't feel that anymore. And then also one thing, Oh, shoot. Joe Sullivan talked about it, and I wish I knew the video in which he mentioned it because um, Jamal Jamal said he learned a lot of good hook grip stuff from the Joe Sullivan video. Joe mentioned something about the placement of your two fingers when hook gripping that I never saw when I hook gripped. But um, one big thing when I, when I do a hook grip is I try to let the bar hang in my hand. So like my thumb, if I can... Here we go. My thumb kind of like... <laughs> my thumb kind of lengthens underneath the bar and it's like the bars, it doesn't necessarily pull my thumb out of the socket, but it, it's like the bar is just sitting here and it, it pulls there. And I got used to that too. I don't squeeze the bar when I hook grip. It's kind of like this and the bar weight just chills there. So I think that's one thing that kind of made it really easy for me, but yeah. I think, uh, Kayler Woolham actually helped Joe and Joe kind of helped, uh, Jamal and kind of down there. So I always uh, refer people over to Kaylor because he seems to have it uh, dialed really, in really, really well. Um, and yeah, I, I think there's been a lot of tricks and it's one of those things where I actually wish I would have never asked the Gillingham brothers how to develop a hook grip because their answer was like, do you have a hammer? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And it was like, just pound your thumbs until you have no feeling in your thumbs anymore. I was like, you know what? Never mind. It's all Wait, good, man. I'll that's just- real? 
Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Not like only dead will in, it deaden the nail. <laughs> It'll deaden the feeling, but they also, I mean, if you look at their thumbs, if you ever have a chance to, their thumbs are like flat. <laughs> what the fuck? They're flat, but that, if you think about it, that's going to give you more area to kind of grab on, and it's going to make your hook grip better. But also, those guys' hands are twice the size of my hand, okay. and I don't have, you know, really small mitts myself. I mean, those guys are just enormous people, so they really didn't need, you know, to hammer their thumbs. It's one of those things where, uh, you know, that's a really really old way of doing things but uh i wish that you know i had been able to kind of see a kaler video back in the day because i think hook grip was uh you know is obviously something that can really be a benefit and i remember mark tried to go through it for a long time and he had a hell of a time oh brutal. he was just like all all i want to do is deadlift 630 and you know i'm gonna call that a win he did it uh after a couple of months and then he was like i'm never fucking doing that again <laughs> <clears throat> That's amazing. So we were talking earlier about, you know, like using chains to help the, um, uh, like the, the hardest part of a bench box squat for the same thing is, um, like what, what are some things that conjugate can do to make things a little bit harder? So that way, when you do go on the platform without those things, you can progress a little bit, uh, I guess, faster or stronger, better, quicker. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, I think the, the real benefit of the West side stuff is you can pick some stuff that's really evil and just devastating. And, uh, you know, you see that programming from Jesse Burdick and you're like, Oh my God, why is he making us do that? Because you could do a box squat onto like a 12 inch box and have like a three second pause, you know, if you camping out on the box. And so that, that would be one way to make something harder is to, you know, try to have a pause in there, try to have, you know, some sort of change in tempo. Um, what I used to do a lot of was good mornings. I was really, really big on doing good mornings and I would do the mornings, do good mornings out of a rack and I would uh, have the chains, um, the weight would be suspended in chains and I would almost always use a uh, cambered bar or a duffalo bar of some sort because uh, having it bent over your back works a lot better than just a straight bar. A straight bar and good mornings is like sort of weird, especially when you don't have good uh, shoulder mobility, but yeah, implementing, implementing just different movements, trying to make, you know, what, what's a way to make this movement really hard. Louis Simmons was a big proponent of really changing up stances and changing up grips at West side. They used to do illegally wide bench presses and it sounds funny, but the, you know, you're not in competition. You're not allowed to have your index finger out past the power rings. And so you would bench press uh, with your hands out even wider and just being cautious that you don't pinch your hands in the rack or um, the cops see you too. Cause it's illegal. <laughs> yeah, right. You got to be careful with that. And then also uh, deadlifts, you know, you might do a sumo deadlift, where you get your stance out so wide that you would put collars on the inside of the bar and then you would load plates on there. And man, it's just like super uncomfortable. And the way that we would do these exercises sometimes because some of them are, they're just dangerous. I mean, I remember like the, <laughs> the kneeling, the kneeling squat was one. And Louie would say like, Louie's like, Hey, look, you know, getting strong isn't safe, you know? And so we need to like, the the uh the worse the exercise the uh the stronger we're going to be and i would i would do my good mornings with my 
head pretty much fucking between my legs. I mean, other people would set up and try to do a good morning with me and they couldn't even get into position for it. And again, I'm not flexible at all, but I was just like, Hey, I'm just going to make this the worst possible thing that I, that I can do. So there's a lot of ways to, uh, you know, make the exercises uh, evil and torturous. What you got verdict? I, I think just in anything, whether it's lifting or athletics, I think, you know, practices should be harder than the game. Uh, because you want the game to kind of just, you know, flow and you don't necessarily want to be thinking about it. You want to be just ultimately prepared for these things. And what conjugate does or what the focus should be is weak point development. So if we know that you're, you know, a terrible deadlifter doing what Smelly was doing is exactly what he should have been doing. You know, if you have a lot of problems with getting the bar off your chest, you should be doing some pause stuff or some, you know, eccentric stuff. So we're not trying to, you know, continually throwing, you know, lobbing softballs at you so you can, you know, hit a home run. It's just like, Hey, work on what you're terrible at. And by the time you get, get around to the stuff that you're good at, you're just going to be kind of so much better. So, um, and, and like, like Mark talked about, there's so many different ways to, to do that, but just really taking a, a, an honest look at, you know, where you are weak, what needs development and having your focus be on that opposed to what you're good at and what's going to look best on Instagram. And good mornings happen to work really well for me because my squats were basically good mornings. <laughs> so I was just well, like, think, how do I, I how do I get yeah. out of that position? You know, I mean, it, in general, if you want to make your training harder than any other lift, is you know, do a good morning. It, it, you know, it's not a good morning, as Mark and I used to say. It's it's a bad week. Oh God, that makes sense. Yeah. What about so you guys talked about like um, conjugate for athletes, um, but you guys didn't touch on like bodybuilders. Can a bodybuilder utilize any of this? I think so. I think a bodybuilder can utilize some of the methods. I think especially when it comes to uh, utilizing like bands and chains, I think bodybuilders could get a lot from it. And I, I don't know why. I'm not really sure why you don't see bodybuilders utilizing bands and chains as much. Um, it really makes a lot of sense. I'm surprised that we don't have machines that have bands on them already. You know, I'm mm-hmm. surprised that a lot of the uh, selectorized equipment, I, I don't understand why that doesn't have bands on it because, again, accommodating resistance and making the weight harder as your body gets into a more advantageous position just makes a lot of sense to me because then you just end up with, uh, you end up with more constant tension. Um, so it, it would assist some of the methods would assist bodybuilding. What, what wouldn't matter much for bodybuilding would be, um, like the dynamic effort stuff I don't think would matter as much because, and also just trying to move explosively a lot of times in, in, um, a lot of times in powerlifting, we're trying to avoid, uh, you know, having a lot of muscular tension and having any sort of like muscular fight with the weight we want to, like when you bench press, you know, I used to always think like, I just want to get this done as fast as I fucking can. I want to lay down on the bench and just blast the weight up and, and have it be over with. And typically in, in bodybuilding, it's much more meticulous, much, much more thought out process. Like I'm going to do six reps or I'm going to do 12 reps and I'm going to squeeze and, and, uh, you know, flex as I go through this movement, the West side stuff does account for bodybuilding though. They, they have like most of the training, actually, I would say the highest percentage of training is devoted to bodybuilding or at least at least 50% of it is devoted to the repetition effort method, which is uh, just basically bodybuilding techniques, sets and reps. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think, um, you know, 
when Mark was talking there, I think bodybuilders want to really feel the weight through the movement and kind of make sure that the muscle activation is there. As powerlifters, we don't really want to feel the weight because hopefully it's really heavy and it fucking hurts and we want to get it over with as soon as possible. Um, but yeah, I think all the assistance stuff that we, we do is, should be, uh, in my opinion, more bodybuilding style stuff. But as a bodybuilder, you need not only, um, you know, overall volume, but also frequency. So training really heavy doesn't always necessarily lend to that. Um, so I think that that's where maybe they kind of move away from things and, um, you know, they're not, you don't have to really squat, bench or deadlift a whole bunch to look awesome on stage. Uh, I think it does help. Um, and I think that's why someone like Stan, someone like Ronnie Coleman and some of the other guys who actually do lift, uh, heavy, they have a different look than some of the other bodybuilders who are on stage with them. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, you know, that also kind of depends on what people are looking for, what the judges are looking for that year or, you know, kind of that, that point in time in bodybuilding. But I, you can always tell someone who is a heavier lifter, their, their muscle and their kind of their overall physique looks a little bit different, but that's, again, that's not always advantageous. And that could be only in bodybuilding where, you know, classic physique or, you know, the, all that other stuff, you, you don't necessarily want to have that look. So I think uh, lifting heavy sometimes is not necessarily used because of, because of that. But, you know, don't ever uh, discount a lot of bodybuilders. I mean, they come in and they want to party. They can, they can usually lift because they have such an enormous, you know, base of training and they can handle so much volume that, you know, oftentimes they can come in and really kind of smoke you. And, you know, I've had that, uh, have that experience a number of times, you know, outside of stand, but I mean, very notably by stand. No, I'm curious about this too, real quick, because it's, um, I, I don't, yeah, we haven't mentioned it, but isometrics, um, uh-huh. how often, because I think if people have a rack at home, they could probably do some isometric work, whether it be with a deadlift or, um, or whether it be with a bench, um, but like, yeah, how could somebody and why would somebody want to add that into their training? I think, you know, isometrics is one of those things. If you, if you really do some research and some reading on it, I mean, it was used, um, classically by a lot of the, um, Olympic lifting coaches and, uh, back in the day, but it was used very sparingly. And the reason for that is because of kind of the damage that it can do, um, on your body. Uh, I think also we have to take into consideration that, you know, in order to really get the most out of any sort of isometric, your form needs to be very, very dialed and very, very important. And I also think there's something to, um, you, you have to have someone teach you how to do that because it's really easy to kind of pull into the, um, the pins or push into the pins and just don't, you know, you need to be trying to pull the rack off the floor. You need to be pushing the rack off the floor and you need to do that for five, six, seven, eight seconds. And a lot of people will pull there and they'll just kind of hang out. And I mean, you should be, you know, it should be tearing, you know, muscle off the bone, you know, in order to get the effect that you do. So I don't think isometrics for a lot of people in kind of garage gyms or, you know, kind of an individual setting is good because the effort isn't there and you don't get a whole lot out of it because people just don't understand what that feeling is like, you know, I mean, we used to pull against, you know, pins until, and the only reason we would stop is because we thought we tore something in our shoulders. That's how you get an isometric benefit. And, you know, you would just push into a pin until it would literally just fall on you. 
because you're just completely gassed out. Mm-hmm. So I just don't think people go there and therefore they're not going to get, you know, much out of the isometrics. Gotcha. Yeah, and then like a <clears throat> practicality, you know, it's just not that practical. I know Josh Bryant recommends some of it. And uh, he also has you sometimes doing like an isometric movement in between speed stuff. But Josh Bryant, you know, he, he's got some uh, great training techniques and some great methods. I would say that like if, if somebody wants to use some like holds and some different things during a training session, I would rather see people just throw in some pause work, you know, um, but maybe throw it in in some unconventional places. So rather than thinking of like, oh, I'm going to use an isometric to get rid of this weak point because I have trouble locking out the bench, maybe, um, you know, push the weight off your chest, get the weight maybe just a little bit above halfway and then try to hold it for like a three count and then push through. I'd rather see people do stuff like that because I think it's, um, as Burdick's mentioning, like the amount of force that you have to try to produce to get isometrics to work is difficult to really mimic. And it's also uh, going to depend a ton on the individual. It's going to depend on what angle that you're on, because if you if you're trying to push into a weight that's like basically set up uh, so you're just barely off your chest, you might not be able to produce any force. And that could be for multiple reasons. Maybe you're just not that flexible or just not that comfortable in that position. Whereas as you go up higher, you might be able to apply more uh, force to it and stuff. So there's just like just maybe too many factors in there to really mess with. And I would just encourage people rather than maybe thinking of that, just think about things logically and say, you know, where am I missing weights? You know, do I miss, am I really having a hard time out of the hole? Well, if I have a hard time out of the hole in the squat, maybe I should just pause there for a while. You know, maybe as, as Chad Wesley Smith points (laughs) out, uh, spend more time in the positions that you suck at and you'll probably end up being better at them. Yeah. What, what about- yeah, I, I agree. I think tempo work and pause work can very easily get the same training effect that isometrics are trying to get um, without the, the setup and kind of the know-how. So, I mean, it's a real cheap, easy way to do that. What about, um, I, th- I believe Jen Thompson, she'll load up a shit ton of weight, unrack it, hold it, and then re-rack it. So that's why- a great point, Andrew. Yeah. That's so that that works really well, and mm-hmm. that's um that's different because um she the weight is being like loaded onto her. You know, she's getting the weight handed out to her. Uh, you know, just she, even if she was to lift the weight off herself, there's still some movement going on with that. <clears throat> it would be similar to uh, moving like um I'm sorry, it'd be similar to walking out a squat. Um, there's another movement that um I wouldn't really consider like the same exactly, but like, uh, of the same vein is like, uh, top down deadlifts, uh, which was used by some Finnish lifters for a long time where they would, they would barely move the weight like an inch. And as Burdick and I have been pointing out during, throughout the podcast, you know, you're going to be strongest, you're strongest at, at holding weight at the top of the bench, your strongest holding weight at the top of a deadlift, your strongest, you know, holding the weight on your back at the top of the squat. And so you could take advantage of these things by having weight handed out to you and doing some holds. So I'm glad that you brought that up because you can also, you know, walk out a squat you can do this kind of uh, bottom or top down uh, deadlift where you unrack the weight and then bring it down uh, under control somebody has to move pins out of the way though for you to be able to do that um, you need a coordinated effort you need three you know you need a person lifting and you need two people to pull the pins out from the uh, rack to be able to make that one work 
Uh, yeah, I, I, and I mean, this isn't, you know, that what Jen's doing isn't new, and she's, you know, and I mean, her husband and I have kind of talked about it, you know, that's what Dr. Squat used to do way back when, he would just overload his squat and kind of take it out. Yeah. It's something that a lot of people have used in their, um, in their meat preps for a long, long time, and it, again, I think it's kind of that reverse band feature method that Louie would always talk about as well. It's just getting the feel for that weight. And also getting a feel for a weight that you may not squat or you may not bench. It's just holding that. And it's, it, it's also, I think, uh, I think this is Chad Ike's quote, which is like the worst part about a lift should be the setup. And how do you kind of overemphasize being tight and getting solid underneath there? And it's like, what do you bench? I bench 400 pounds. Well, try and hold 500 pounds and then you'll understand what a tight setup and a strong setup is. And you're like, Oh, oh, tight setup. Oh, okay. I understand now. So, I mean, I think it's a teaching tool and I think it's an easy way to kind of overload things. And I think it's also kind of a mental thing. You know, I've had, um, I've had some people, I think tiny Tiff actually walked out like 430 pounds and she's a 330 pound lifter at, you know, 97 pounds. And, you know, she was sitting there, you know, shaking, going back and forth, trying to stay tight. And she's like, that's the worst thing I've ever done in my whole life. Um, but then we dropped it back down and gave her, you know, 90% and the, you know, 300 and, you know, she, she dunked it and came back up. She was like, Holy shit, that was so easy. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely training effects, but again, you know, we got to, all these things work, but we got to figure out when they work best and what to precede and, you know, follow it up with as well to really get the maximum thing out of it. I don't want people to go and start, you know, walking out 120% of their squat and then trying to take 90%, you know, every week, because that's just the, you know, you're going to get hurt doing that yeah. just flat period. We, uh, we kind of talked about, they touched on the sled initially. Um, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have sleds at home, but obviously, you know, both of you guys are proponents of doing some sort of conditioning. So what do you think are like some good conditioning tools that people can grab? Like, kettlebells, et cetera. What, what do you think are some good ones that they can grab to help them be conditioned for being a power lifter? Um, yeah, anything. You don't even need a piece of equipment. Just go, especially for, you know, general power lifting, just go for a walk. Um, but, you know, anything that you like. I mean, there's a lot of people from different backgrounds. You know, I remember a guy who used to uh, be a boxer and he would always want to jump rope because that's just what he felt, what he felt really good with doing and he was used to it. And he knew he could kind of zone out and just kind of do his thing. Um, the sled's amazing, uh, because it, I think Mark coined this term, it's dummy proof. I've only seen one person fuck up dragging a sled, uh, in my whole career. Um, so, you know, you Who can was that person. Can we call them out? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, well, I don't know where he is at this point. I'm sure, you know, he's a professor at Stanford or Harvard somewhere. Um, but this was the kid at Diablo that, um, he was, this is, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to really make fun of the kid, but I mean, he was the dumbest person I've ever met in my whole life. Oh. Um, he, he actually, he would grab a sled and, you know, we would, you'd have to kind of click the sled on, on the carabiner and start dragging it. But oftentimes because there's so many different things, you know, click to the sled or whatever, um, you don't always have the dragging one. And he was a football player and they were like, Hey, go drag the sled and, you know, go do your thing. It's like, Okay. So he goes out there and he kind of walks past the, uh, the garage door and we walk past and he just has the chain and it's dangling back there and it's not attached to a sled. And he walks past and then he walks and he goes out there and we're just like, Hey Derek. Like, yeah. Like, how's the sled drag? Good. Oh, God. Are you, are you missing something? He's like, 
I don't think so. And I was like, look behind you. And he kind of looks. And he goes, oh. And he's like, okay. I mean, Whoops. you know, if you're going to drag a sled, go drag a sled. This is also the kid that, you know, I think he pulled like 225. And, or he pulled, yeah, I think he pulled like over 200 pounds. But there was like a, a plate and then like a 10 and then a 25. And he was all fucked up. I was like, how much weight is on there? And he was just like, <laughs> and, he, and he shrugged his shoulders and he goes, 200 i was like no and then he he looked at it again and he went 300 i was like no and he looked at it again and he goes four i was like i'm gonna stop you there uh so we we actually created a math test for him to get into the gym he had to pass a math test in order to get in here and he called it he said coach i'm sorry i'm not really good at plussing the circles on the stick so think about that again. I'm not good at plussing the circles on the stick. Yeah. That's a sentence that you can only hear from someone who can fuck up a sled drag. Oh God. Amazing. Yeah. That's uh, back that. He's definitely a math professor somewhere at this point. <laughs> back to the fat guy cardio. Uh, another good one from, uh, from Jesse was just to walk with uh walk with some sort of weights, you know, yeah. walk with a weighted vest or, you know, whatever way you can, maybe you can throw some uh, books in a backpack or something like that and, and, and go for a walk. So I think just throw they, a hip circle on, I have people just yeah, walk, oh, you know, for, yeah. for long periods of time with the hip circle. They'll, or, yeah, you make people ride the bike. Oh yeah. yeah. You make people ride their bike with the hip circle, not your actual like bike, but a stationary bike. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I would tell you to do that. That would probably end very poorly. <laughs> yeah. When we were talking about like overloading, um, you know, weights, it instantly made me think of like weight releasers. Um, those are a lot of fun. Do you guys have any like of your favorite like tools to use in the gym? Like, you know, like a weight releaser or whatever. I like all that stuff. I like the bands. I like the chains. Um, the weight releasers are fun. Um, but they're, they're not, again, like you're trying to look at like practicality, you know, like what's practical, the weight releasers work pretty good on a bench and then they get kind of too weird on a squat or it just gets to be like, not so safe. A weight releaser is just uh weights you put on the side, uh, you put on the side of the bar. And then as you go to come down in a bench press, they come off. Uh, so it's, it's adding, you know, whatever amount of weight you want to put on there, you can put a 25 on there or 45 or tens, um, you know, just adds a little bit of weight to the bar. I think, I think that's a pretty effective method. I I've always liked it. It's not very popular. I don't really see a lot of other people, um, uh, messing around with it, but I've always personally liked probably more so than the bands is the chains just cause, uh, it's kind of the dead weight feel to them. Um, and they're great for other exercises when we do, um, when we do flies, so we, we grab a hold of the handles that we would use uh, on some of the cable pieces that we have at the gym. We'll use hand, we use the handles and we attach the chains to that and we do like flies or bench press or tricep extensions with that. That feels amazing. Um, you know, if you have access to some chains, you might want to try like a floor lying on the floor. Um, tricep extension because the again the weights are going to hit the ground the weights are going to hit the, the chain is going to hit the ground sorry and it's going to kind of deload and you don't have nearly as much weight i used to do a lot of extensions too just barbell tricep extensions um on a bench and I, I would set the chains up in a way that they would hit the ground because when you have the weight uh at your 
forehead on like a skull crusher, like that's usually where you feel the tension in your elbows. You're like, man, man, that really freaking hurts. Super uncomfortable. But you could have about half of the weight deloaded onto the floor and then the weight, uh, you know, comes on stronger as you're, you know, push, pushing the weight up. So there's a lot of great spots to utilize, um, bands and chains, but I'd say chains are, were always kind of my fave. I think one of the, uh, one of my favorite tools <clears throat> is, uh, is a bamboo bar. I think mm. that it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's a cheaper, easier way to teach you how to stabilize and move heavy weights because the reality of the situation <clears throat> is that you're not going to squat bench or deadlift in a straight line when you're getting the 90, 95% weight. There's going to be variation. There's going to be some stuff that goes wrong. And what's cool about the Buffalo or the, um, the bamboo bar is everything is going wrong and you're learning how to kind of press through it, stabilize and kind of come off of it. So, I mean, whenever we do like a heavier, uh, like a bench peak heading into a meet, one of the um, things that we would always do is just do bamboo bar. And it just, it's so restorative for whatever reason. Um, and it makes you just feel so much better. And then you can kind of add in a little bit of the squat to it as well. And it's just a really easy way to move some lighter weight. You know, this is kind of the concept of underloading. Um, you're not going to be able to use a whole lot of weight on those things. And um, it, it, it teaches you how to move. It teaches you how to stabilize. And, um, you know, it's a lot of fun to see someone take their first ride on the uh, bamboo bar and, you know, almost hmm. die with a uh, hundred pounds. Yeah. And super easy uh, plug, but how does the, uh, the slingshot come into play with all of this? I think it's useful, you know, everywhere, to be honest with you, whether it's, you know, you use it on a dynamic, if dynamic effort day, you use the, uh, you know, the reactive where, um, you know, if you're a little bit banged up or you just got off of a heavy squat workout or you have a heavy squat workout coming, um, use it on max effort days to kind of help you overload, um, you know, use it for push-ups again to kind of get those reps way up there. I think it's a, it's a really useful tool. And I think, you know, the reason it was developed is because, you know, putting on a shirt, a bench shirt, um, was so time consuming and, you know, resource consuming with people and everything else. You know, you, Mark would have to have seven people around him in order to get anything done on a shirt day. And if you didn't have those people, you're kind of screwed where in a, um, in a slingshot, you can put it on yourself and, you know, still move, you know, 90% plus weights, maybe for multiple reps without, you know, anyone necessarily needing to be there or needing to help a, you know, a grown man get dressed. Yeah. And when it comes to like home gym setups, if you don't want to use bands, you don't want, or you don't have access to all that, you kind of have the same, um, like feeling with a slingshot, right? Yep. Yeah. And years ago, um, you know, when I developed the slingshot, I have a video that's pretty much, I I think it's like 10 years old because we're going on a 10 year anniversary and, um, I'm, you know, showing the slingshot and then I have a bunch of other people in the slingshot in the video. Tim Ferriss is, uh, rocking the slingshot and messing around with it, having a lot of fun with it. And there's some other people in there, but I've told you guys and Seema, Andrew, I've told many people before, I'm like, you know, you, people have asked like, Hey, did people believe in your project? Did people believe in the slingshot? You know, did, was there anybody? And I used to say no, 
but I have video proof that my boy was behind me from day one because my boy, Jesse Burdick, uh, the second he tried it out, um, you were like, this thing's revolutionary. This thing's unbelievable. You were like into it. And, you know, hope, hopefully you were saying that just because you love me rather than it actually working. But um, no, I, I thought that, that was cool. When I watched the video, I was like, damn, I was like, there's my boy right behind me from day one. Well, for me, and, you know, this isn't a shameless plug here, but it is, um, you know, I was never really good uh, at, at benching in a bench press shirt because I just couldn't get the feel right. I was, again, a longer-limbed um, lifter, and bench press shirts are just not really meant for me. Uh, so I never really got the f- same feeling that the bench press, you know, good shirted bench pressers would kind of talk about. You know, like, oh, you get this pop, you get this this. It's like it just fucking hurts. And then I think I lock it out. That's like pretty much the extent of my bench press shirt knowledge at this point. Uh, I never really got the spring or pop. And then the first time I put on a slingshot, I was like, Oh, I think I understand how bench press shirts are supposed to work now because I understand that feeling. And it actually helped me become a better shirted bench presser because I was like, okay, I understand what I'm looking for and where I need to put this because in the shirt, you would need a hundred percent plus in order to get that bar down to your chest. Mm. If you get it wrong, you're fucked. Um, in a slingshot, you can use it with 135 and really kind of dial in kind of that form, dial in your you know movement pattern. So I think it just made, it, it just helped me understand how to bench press in a shirt, but also put me in a good bench press position to, to bench raw as well. And um, it was one of those things where I hated putting on a shirt because it took forever and it did nothing but hurt. My, my hands used to go numb. I would have to take the shirt off because my, you know, forearms would go gray. So, I mean, I never had a really great, um, great sessions in a shirt because it was just nothing but, you know, awful and pain for me. And the slingshot kind of helped me understand how to make that a little bit better, at least. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of haters out there. And I mean, I remember being in a group of people where like, this thing is fucking stupid and, you know, kind of moving on. But, um, you know, they all came around whether they liked it or not. <laughs> um, you know, also, as we were mentioning earlier with the uh, box squat, you know, I think if you're not, if you're not, uh, if you don't have to express your one rep max strength in competition with a particular squat or a bench press or a deadlift, then I think it's, it's a awesome tool to utilize. You know, I think for myself personally, uh, I've been slingshot bench pressing for as long as I've invented the product and uh, been box squatting forever. And it's just something that it allows me to continue to do what I love to do. I can still bench press with and without the slingshot. Never ran into any, uh, you know, major injuries that sidelined me, you know, permanently from being able to do those things. Had had some tears and stuff, had some bumps and some bruises along the way. But if you're an athlete, I think the slingshot even makes more sense. And those same strength coaches I mentioned that implement box squatting, they all have slingshots uh, in their their repertoire as well. I think, uh, you know, I mean, if we really look at why everyone likes the box squat and and the slingshot is because it really teaches people without having to over-teach them how to do a movement mm-hmm. and do it correctly. And we know that the risk for injury is a lot lower. So anything that can make somebody's job easier like that, especially in, you know, a strength coach situation where you're going to have multiple athletes worth lots and lots of money, um, that those tools are always going to be invaluable. Jesse, when yeah, you so many uh, people have shoulder injuries and stuff too. So it yeah, works right. for that. when you, uh, when you program something for somebody, um, 
and you utilize the slingshot, do you write the program more for um, overloading or for more uh, like reps and sets? Um, I, I particularly use the slingshot mostly for overload. Um, I always throw out the option if I get feedback like, hey, my shoulders are trashed or, you know, it just feels awful. Like, hey, why don't you throw in a reactive slingshot and kind of just get through this. Let's get your reps in. Uh, opposed to limiting range of motion by putting a board in or, you know, not bench pressing. I would rather people do, you know, reactive. Um, but I utilize all of the slingshots in kind of some of the max effort work. And um, this is going to sound completely nuts, but one of my favorite indicator lifts for a lot of my clients is going to be a slingshot uh, bench press versus a full range slingshot bench press versus uh, some bands. Um, over the past five or six years, when I really started to use that a lot, we found out that the bands and the um, slingshot almost cancel each other out and you can almost bench press what your one rep maximum is. So it's a really cheap, easy way to kind of see where your bench is um, without necessarily, you know, just having to do it one way or the other. It, it cuts down a little bit on the eccentric pain and really forces a lot of lockout. So um, I like to use it. And again, it's one of those things where I use it probably like once a month, it'll kind of be in there for, um, for the bench press, uh, for the max effort bench press stuff. So, uh, I use it, you know, pretty often. That's another really way to cool. know your, another way to know your max in it too, is, is usually what you can do for about three reps, yep. is what you can do for a single and that like Jesse's gym, um, and, and Jesse's people have been kind of the initial, like, uh, some of the original testing ground, because I was like, well, I don't want to just test it out of my own people. Like that's kind of, you know, if I'm just, if I'm only testing out of my own people, I'm going to be like, yeah, it increases your bench by 7,000%. Mm-hmm. Makes, <laughs> makes your dick bigger. <laughs> it makes you look younger. Yeah. Um, you know, so Jesse's uh, gym has been, you know, they've been utilizing it for a long time, and I'm grateful for that. Cool. No shame in our game. Uh, for 15% off Slingshot, head over to markbellslingshot.com. At checkout, enter promo code POWERPROJECT, and you get 15% off all the Slingshots, and you can buy all of them. The code is kind of endless. So, uh, yeah, these guys well, know. Cheat code. Yeah, it's a cheat code. Yeah. Verdict, a- is that a crib? behind you yeah crib? yeah yeah this, uh, mtv mtv cribs <laughs> yeah this is this this was the office it's now uh uh baby girl's room uh so it, it's it's so full of shit it's unbelievable this is this, this she has this is this baby gonna be uh the same size as tiny tiff when it comes out <laughs> <laughs> very 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 likely yes and uh she's got clothes until she's two years old in the closet over here if you can see uh there's there's so much stuff she has more oh, i see uh, diapers I, and everything all ready to go it it's amazing she has more stuff than i do at this point uh what's the name uh we're still fighting about that mm. i wanted uh initially i wanted johnny karate um <laughs> but uh that uh that got nixed pretty early on so we're we're still trying to figure that out yeah it's gonna be tough yeah. <laughs> little bit ba- little baby mark running around <laughs> How about Smelly? Smelly's a pretty good name. I'll I'll throw it out there, man. How about baby Yoda? Well, not baby, but just Yoda. Oh I yeah, a, a kid Yoda. named Yoda would be dope. Yeah, I mean that'd be just and baby Yoda. I don't think Katie would be a fan of that. <laughs> no, see that's that's the thing. If it was me, then yeah, we could we could really party. But yeah, we got to mm-hmm. run it past Katie, and uh, she doesn't think we're as funny as we think we are. Hmm. What a hater! I know. <laughs> 
Uh, is your gym, uh, you guys, you guys are back and, and going a little bit, right? Or not yet? Yeah, it's, um, you know, a couple of really small steps forward and kind of now kind of hanging out. Uh, we were supposed to be able to take a couple steps, a little, a couple more steps forward, uh, uh, this week and next week. And that's kind of been put on a little bit of a pause. So, I mean, we're able to get back into the gym in certain capacities, um, but not completely uh, full bore quite yet. So um, we're still waiting for the okay to um, do more, but at this point we're still operating and able to do, um, you know, about 80% of what we would like to. So, I mean, that's a, How's that been a for, start. How's that been for you? Cause I know, I know you were pretty bummed that you weren't able to see and help all the people that you were helping all the time. Yeah. It's, it's been great to see everybody and kind of just be able to check in. Um, it's been really depressing to see everybody come in and, uh, be operating at like 60% of what they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everyone is really excited to come back and then they get a bar and their hands are on their back and they're like, Holy shit. And I was like, ah, just take your time and, you know, let's just build up. Let's just be happy to be here, happy to move around. Um, I think it's been, you know, something that we talked about. I think something that was discounted by the powers that be, uh, the gym is an amazing place for, you know, mental health. And I think, you know, just having people back for the last couple of weeks is brighten people's moods up, um, really help them kind of, you know, get a little bit more of a focus and start to dial in their lives a little bit better, you know, just by being able to move and be in the gym. And, um, it's been, uh, it's been awesome to just be able to have somewhere to go even and, uh, get to see some of my friends. Cool. Hey, thanks. Thank you so much for today and, uh, enjoy the rest of your day and hopefully I'll see you in a couple of days. Absolutely. My pleasure guys. Thanks for having me as always. Thanks a lot, yeah, bud. Thank you. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun. Learned a lot. <laughs> He's got a baby on the way. Yeah, that's crazy. That's yeah. Some wild, wild stuff. Yeah, I I think we got through a lot of good stuff with the conjugate system. Uh, again, you know, Jesse gave a really good uh, breakdown of of what it is exactly. If people are looking for some resources, you know, you want to you know follow up this podcast and you want to like maybe dive into it a little bit more. Jim Wendler wrote a book uh, called Five Three One. And Jim Wendler's written a lot of articles on the West Side Method. Um, look up anything from Louis Simmons. He's written tons of books on his own method, obviously, the West Side Method. Um, and also uh, there is an article called Periodization Bible Part 1 and 2, which is written by Dave Tate. And it just it's just a summary of everything that the West Side Barbell System is and uh, how to do it and all that stuff. So I think we covered it. I think we hammered it uh, pretty good. We talked about the max effort work, the dynamic effort work, the repetition effort method. Um, You're going to, you know, do a heavy lower body workout once a week, a heavy upper body once a week. And you're also going to follow up those workouts with speed work for both the upper body and the lower body. And then mixed in after your main movement of the day, your main intent of the day, you're, that's where you're going to throw in all the bodybuilding stuff, all the accessory assistance, weak point training uh, type of thing. So I thought it worked out pretty good. Yeah, I think, um, well, not I think, but like, uh, like I, Louis Simmons, I think it's called West Side, West Side Barbell Book of Methods. Um, that's 
I mean, that's for sale and it's extensive and it goes deep and he wrote it. So mm-hmm. if you want to get it from the source, it's, it's there online. You could purchase it. hundred percent. Yeah, buddy. Awesome. You guys ready to get out of here? Ready to get on out of here. <laughs> Thank you everybody for checking out today's episode. Thank you to Piedmontese for sponsoring this episode. Um, for more information on them and the slingshot, which is at markbellslingshot.com. We talked a lot about it today. Um, check the uh, YouTube description, Facebook description, and podcast show notes. Please make sure you're following the podcast at Mark Bell's Power Project on Instagram, at MB Power Project on TikTok and Twitter. My Instagram is at I am Andrew Z. And Seema, where you at? And Sima Yang on Instagram and YouTube, and Sima Yin Yang on TikTok and Twitter. Mark, I'm at Mark's Belly Bell. Strength is never a weakness. Weakness is never strength. Catch y'all later.